But the siesta, no, I, I am completely committed to the siesta, as is my partner and my dog. At 1.30, we all go to the television room where we have recliners, and we sit in the recliner, put our heads back, and have half an hour's siesta. This is an act of resistance. This is thumbing our nose. This is cocking a snook at capitalism. And so that's what we do. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, a life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky, and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Robert Desai is the quintessential Australian public intellectual. You may know him from hosting books and writing on ABC Radio from 1985 to 1995. Well, for more than a dozen books, including novels, edited collections, non-fiction works, and two autobiographical volumes. Born in Sydney, Robert never knew his father, who was killed in a plane crash shortly after Robert's birth. He was adopted at a young age by Tom and Jean Jones, an educated in North Sydney Boys High and the Australian National University. Robert worked as an academic, a translator and a radio producer before becoming a full-time writer two decades ago. Among his best-known works are A Mother's Disgrace, Night Letters, Corfu, and so forth, Twilight of Love, and The Pleasures of Leisure, which he is currently promoting. Robert lives in Battery Point with his partner of some 30 years, writer Peter Timms. Robert, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. It's my pleasure. Now, one of the striking things about your upbringing is that you're raised by a man who was born in the 1880s, what was that? What is that like? How are you different for having been raised by a, by by a, uh, an adopted father uh, born in the the age before Federation? I think that I've stayed a sort of nineteenth century person in some uh, queer kind of way. My love when I studied Russian literature and taught Russian literature was always the nineteenth century. I'm not sure that I've ever completely made the change into the. 20th, let alone into the 21st century. (laughs) I love the language of the 19th century, and my father, who was uneducated, spoke beautiful English. Many people did in those days without actually having learnt grammar. He learnt grammar in order to speak French to me because he knew that I was of French descent, so to speak, broadly speaking, blood-wise. So he learnt French... And to do that, he had to learn what verbs were and what nouns were. And it's very touching, really, looking back, to, to see that a man who left school when he was about 12, I think, just went to a, a parish school in Port Augusta, South Australia, would do this for a little boy who wasn't actually his. I think being adopted is one of the greatest gifts that you can ever have. I think that you are loved in a particular way, not in a better way, or a stronger way, but in a very particular way, which gives you freedom. 
to choose who you want to be. You don't have to be like Uncle Albert or you don't have to be like Auntie Maisie because genes don't come into it. You have this amazing freedom. And when I was very, very little, my father said to me, I don't care whether you're a fireman or a ballet dancer or whether you're a university teacher. I just want you to be happy. And all these years later, I mean, goodness me, it must be over 60 years later, here I am writing a book about this. What would your father's idea of leisure have been? Well, it was to speak French, as a matter of fact, which is, I'm sure, partly why languages are right at the top of my list when it comes to leisure, playing with them. I mean, I'm learning Indonesian at the moment. I will never speak Indonesian. I'm hopeless at it. I love playing with it. I love the look on people's faces when I try it out. It was languages, it was learning French in his case, learning the subjunctive, I mean, you know, which blows your mind. And it was gardening. He loved gardening. I'm not such a gardener, but I live with a gardener. I make the tea. Languages are such an extraordinary part of your life. Just just run us through uh, your, your first language and, and those that you have accumulated over the course of your life. Well, it's not a great number. It's just that I started learning French when I was very small. I mean, really very small, because my adoptive father kept talking to me in French. And then he made us join the Alliance Française, and then we joined a more working-class French society in Sydney called the Franco-Australian Society, where you met visiting sailors and people from a lower socio-economic stratum. Then, because I was collecting stamps, as little boys did, but oddly enough, very few little girls do, I decided to learn Russian in order to read my stamps. And I ended up teaching Russian at the ANU here in Canberra. That's how a hobby can turn you into a connoisseur and change your life. But, you know, living in Europe, one has had a bit of a go at Polish and Finnish and Spanish and Italian and one thing and the other. I did try Greek, but that was impossible. Japanese was a total disaster, I have to tell you. <laughs> I just couldn't get into it at all. It was way beyond me. I'm an Indo-European. And, and, so, and so I love Indo-European languages. And then there's K, your own language. There is. I wasn't expecting you to mention it. <laughs> there is my own language, which, which, again, I started making up as a little boy because, I mean, really little. Because it was a way to work through things without the filter of somebody else's language. I think usually when we speak, we're unaware of how speaking English or speaking even the Australian dialect, or speaking French, whatever it is we might speak, frames us. It forces us to say things we may not have actually thought until we opened our mouths and said it, in Mandarin or in Japanese, whatever language we're saying it in. When it's your own language, you can play. You can say things you couldn't say in anyone else's language. This was mine. And I worked through all sorts of deep things, actually, religious things, but also political things, through my own language, and made up a, a land to go with the language. Have you written a dictionary of K, or does it I all reside in your head? I started, but yes, it does. I thought, who would care, really? 
I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought you once point, one point uh, described the complications of K by referring to the fact that English has a single adjective, green, which, which works in all contexts, whereas in K uh, the similar adjective has many, many different uh, uh, variants. I might have been talking about Russian, in which, of course, the, the, the word for green has many, many different endings, which is never a problem in English. But, yes, when we're talking about language, we quite often refer to colour because we think, as English speakers, that it's quite clear what is green, what is blue, what is red, what is pink. When you are actually making up a language, you realise that you can divide up the rainbow in whatever way you like. And so, in K, I can have two words for two different kinds of green. I mean, Afghans, I understand, I mean, I don't speak any Afghan language, have one word that covers green and blue. English, of course, is of course a, an incredibly rich language. I love English. When I speak French or, or speak Russian, it's not that I don't love English. English is my homeland. It's more my homeland than, if I might say so, Australia is, really. I live inside English, but in my living room, in every room in my house, actually, I have guests from other languages. But it is my homeland. It is where I am most deeply myself. Now, before you were a writer, you were a translator. What does being a translator give you as, as, a, as a linguist, and, and what did it give to your writing subsequently? Uh, have you ever done it? Never. Never. Well, I always translate into English, of course, because you should really always translate into the language in which you are most proficient, in which you have the most number of resources at your, your fingertips. So I always translate into English. It makes you love English more. When you're translating from French in particular, I think you are aware of just how vast English is. And this gives me deep, voluptuous pleasure. Russian is a much richer language than French, for the same reason that it has many roots. Um, Old Church, Simonic, and Mongol, and German, and French, and all sorts of other languages apart from Old Russian. But even so, the main joy is in acquainting me more intimately with my own language. That's the great joy of translating. And for the uh, more than two decades now you've been a writer, uh, do you have particular routines as a, as a writer? Do you write first, th first thing in the morning, last thing in the evening, or simply when the muse strikes? I hope I don't look as if I'm a man who has routines. No, I have no routines. I really do practice what I preach. I write when I feel a certain passion to write. I can't write with a pen anymore. I have to have my laptop. Some people are the opposite. I have a feeling that Marion Halligan here in Canberra is the opposite, that she has to have a pen and paper. She can't do it on a computer, and many writers are like that, must have a computer so that I don't think about what I'm doing, so that the words go straight onto some kind of page. But I don't have a routine. You should write when you are in love with what you're trying to describe, when you're trying to make it real, to embody it. Love is involved. Your uh, autobiography, A Mother's Disgrace, is, uh, is very much about finding your own identity, meeting your birth mother at age 46. What advice would you give to others who are thinking about 
writing their own personal story, which is, I suppose, often the book that uh, people who haven't written before look to write. Yes, it's often the one they start with. What I would remind people is no one gives stuff about you. No one cares about you, where you've come from, whether you've met your mother or not met your mother, whether your grandfather was Aboriginal or Maltese, no one cares. What you have to do as a writer, unless you're just writing for your children, your family, is you have to make people find things out about themselves or want to. People want to know about themselves, not about you. So when I wrote that book, what happened is that about 300 people immediately picked up their pens, those were the days of pens, and wrote me a letter saying, thank you very much, I very much enjoyed your book. Now let me talk to you about me. And they would write five pages about themselves. I will never meet them. And of course, couldn't care less, basically. But I had liberated them to find words, to talk about their own lives, to find patterns in their lives. And that's why they loved my book. Not because... I'm of any interest. I'm of interest to nobody except my partner. So that's, that's almost a, a bigger impact, perhaps, than that of the readers who simply absorbed and loved your story. To have, to have evoked such an outpouring of personal, personal writing, you, you joke about it, but it, it's, it strikes me as pretty impressive. Well, thank you. No, I mean, I'm good at words. It's, it's the only thing I'm good at. I can't... <laughs> drive a car or, you know, plant spinach in the garden or any of those things. I'm good at words, but I think that the way I use them makes people think, you know, I can touch something in myself if I read this book and bring it to life. That's what Robert helps me to do. I can bring something inside myself that's been mute to life. When they start to speak about it, they say, I loved your book. But it's not really, I think, what they meant. Of course, over time, one becomes a bit of an identity to people, and therefore, to some extent of interest, I suppose. I'm interested in Turgenev, I'm interested in Tolstoy, I'm interested in Pushkin, because they are worlds. And of course, they are great writers. I'm none of those things, and so I can't expect people to be interested in everything I write in quite the same way. But if I can nudge you to start talking to yourself about what it means to be adopted or not be adopted, or what religious ideas might mean to you, uh, why I might be writing so favourably about Hinduism, for example, as I have in my last two books, if I can get you to ask yourselves not in a, in a sort of contested way, but in a relaxed way, interesting questions about these things, then you will say, I liked your book. You uh, aren't just a, a ferociously impressive wordsmith on the page, also in, uh, in, in, in the spoken form. And I suppose as a uh, teenager coming to love literature through my high school years, you were very much the voice that uh, I associated with literature through hosting books and writing. How did that shape you as a, as a writer, to, to be the person who was uh, interrogating uh, writer after writer every week? Well, it was utterly formative. When I first went to the ABC to make this program, I had no intention of being a writer. I never really wanted to do anything very much. I wanted to be something, not do. 
um, if possible, in Paris, but that somehow it didn't work out and I found myself back in Canberra. What the ABC did, I suppose, was help me find a voice. And for those of your listeners who are interested in writing, would really love to write something, I would just like to say that there's only one question of truly great importance, and that is crafting a voice. It's not the voice you use in the kitchen. It's not the voice you use with your children or your dog. It's not the voice that you use when you're writing your blog. It is your literary voice, even if you're writing nonfiction, your literary voice. It is not you. And what the ABC helped me craft was a radio voice that all these people, mostly women, I have to say, despite the fact that you were listening and, you know, one or two other men, but basically it's educated women who used to listen to me on the radio, who listen to the ABC in general, I suppose, who come to book events all over the world. They heard a voice that they felt they wanted to keep listening to. It is voice. That's all it is. And it has to be crafted. You're not born with it. So you felt that the voice that you had crafted on air uh, then made it easier to find the right voice in print? Exactly. Because what you're taught is that you must never address everybody on the radio. I mean, you're taught that by the people who teach you how to speak on the radio. You must find someone and tell her what you want to tell her. She knows what you think is funny and what isn't. She doesn't approve of everything that you say. But on the whole, she's really deeply fond of you. Now, I have one or two women who think like that about me. I address them. Everyone else, including you, it would seem, can eavesdrop. And if you don't think everything I say is funny, that's fine. You're only eavesdropping. It it won't bother you because you know that that's what you're doing. Mm. But I'm talking to Susie. One of the uh, debates that's emerged over recent years in uh, in uh, the US called, called E-Press is this question over whether reading great literature makes us better people. Uh, and there was a to and fro, I think, in the New York Times and Time magazine, uh, a piece by Gregory Curry arguing that uh, there's no evidence that great literature makes us better and uh, uh, a lovely response from Annie Murphy-Paul saying that uh, you have to distinguish spiritual reading from carnal reading and that spiritual reading really does make you better. Um, do, you have, do you have a view on this? I mean, there's certainly your, your, your favourites in the 19th century Russian tradition were, I think, writing with a mind that they were going to make their readers better people. Yes, it's a wonderful question. Of course I have an opinion. I mean, I have an opinion on all sorts of things, particularly if I know almost nothing about the subject. (laughs) I think that we think these books are great books partly because we have a sense of having been amplified by them. I would avoid, of course, words like better. I would avoid particularly words like like spiritual. Um, Carnal I would play with, but I would not use spiritual. And sometimes I talk about that in my books, that I want to avoid this word. I think that we call books great when they amplify us, when they magnify our inner being. So... I don't know if they're making us better, but they're certainly making us bigger, deeper, wider, taller. And that's why we love them. If you think that listening to a Beethoven sonata is the same as listening to a Kellogg's jingle, then I think you've misunderstood something about the world. And I would say the same about reading Anna Karenina as opposed to reading your best friend's blog. Of course there's a difference. (laughs) Is... uh 
does great literature make us more egalitarian? Uh, I mean, no, uh, again, I don't think so. Why would it? Well, uh, one of, one of the arguments is that it allows us to better better understand the uh, human experience, and therefore to make us feel uh, more in in touch with others who are different from us. Oh well, that's uh, true, but I don't think that's the same thing at all as feeling um, egalitarian. I think it makes us feel more hybrid. And it makes us understand that the world is actually very hybrid, despite what the ideologues in various political parties and, and religious organisations try to tell us. And I think that that's what they do. I would probably avoid the word egalitarian, because I don't think we're all equal in any department of life. Perhaps God thinks we all are, but clearly some people are smarter, some people can run faster, some people are better at designing bridges, some people are better at loving other people. I mean, you know, we're not all equal. But to be an egalitarian is to uh, value uh, the people in, in the, sa the same level rather than to think that they are identical clones. And uh, I suppose it's that it, it's that that value valuing of others which I have in mind with egalitarianism. Well, I suppose uh, what rather books... than looking down and, and seeing uh, the upper class as being better than the working class in, in, in some sense. Oh, and so if you want to talk about class, yes, yes, of course, well, it, it does work like that. I think it's true that it, it makes you. Mm -hmm feel that others have a right to work out their own system of values, but I don't think that anyone should feel obliged to adopt anyone else's values, mine or yours or anyone's, mm. uh, you know, the Pope's, whoever's it might be. You shouldn't feel obliged to adopt them. But I think that as you grow older in particular, uh, it's not quite so true, I think, when you're 19, as you grow older, you do indeed, in your sense of the word egalitarian, feel you have an equal right uh, with my right to make your own choices about what seems good to you and I would say what seems pleasurable to you. Yes, there's that. How do you read? You were saying before you'd moved from pen to computer. Have you moved from uh, paper books to e-books? E to Kindle. To yes, Kindle? I have. Well, it's just easier, isn't it? It's backlit and you can adjust much. the font. <laughs> but the author doesn't get as much... Uh, return financially from Kindle. Yes, I've done that. Uh, that's how I read. I don't read a lot during the day. This is the Protestant thing uh, where I, I still feel, despite what I've written in this new book, there's something slightly sinful about going to the cinema and about reading while the sun's still up. Isn't that odd? Except possibly on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon. But otherwise, no, I read in the evening... Um, I like a recliner chair for reading, sit in the recliner. I like the dog to be in the room, if possible, just snoring very lightly in the background. And I've moved, as have many people, for reasons that I don't think anyone quite understands, much more into non-fiction in recent years. It's, it's uh, a noticeable drift that booksellers will talk to you about and mm. uh, publishers... We're interested in literary non-fiction all over the world in various languages. And the novel no longer occupies such a glamorous place, let us say, such a must-read place in our culture as it once did. Nor does poetry, for example, um, nor does going to the theatre, nor does opera. 
cultures change. And I think the novel simply does not occupy that same uh, sort of highly valued, much loved, must read space. Do you think that's because the best non-fiction writers are, um, have become better storytellers? I mean, think of people like uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, who were just first-rate tale-tellers uh, while conveying non-fiction. Well, you're probably onto something. I mean, I honestly don't know. Okay. But that probably is true, that a lot of non-fiction is now beautifully written, but has a storyline. I mean, if you take one of those books about let's say, what might it be, say the book called Salt, or I'm busy mm. reading a book about the East India Company at the moment, they have a very satisfying narrative. They open up not just the story of Salt or the East India Company, but the story of India, the story of who we are as descendants of the British, or in the case of Salt, who we are as human beings, because unless you understand Salt, it turns out you don't really know what it means to be human. Do you finish books or do you often discard them midway through? Oh, that's a great question. When I was younger, of course, and much more virtuous than I am now, I would <laughs> always finish them and I would never leave the cinema either before the film ended, even if I <laughs> loathed it. Now, yes, I just throw the book firmly across the room if I'm not enjoying it. Life suddenly appears to me very short, of course, at my age. And so I'm not going to sit in the cinema or keep watching the DVD or finish the book. If it's not feeding me, nourishing me, I'm going to avoid saying nourishing my soul, but you know what I mean. Absolutely. Well, I, as an economist, I wouldn't think of it as uh, being less virtuous. I would think of it as not committing the fallacy of the sunk cost. Uh, once the purchase price has been paid, uh, your choice is simply whether you want to then continue investing time on top of the money that you've, the money. Uh, you've, you've put Exactly. And I don't quite often. I mean, people don't, do they? But you read for so many different reasons. When I'm on holiday, I might be more inclined to read um, some rather shallow detective novel simply because it gives me a rather vulgar thrill. But I'm on holidays. I want different things when I'm on holidays for my money and f to fill my time with. So there are so many topics I want to ask you about, and I settled on the, uh, the, the notion that the only way of tackling it was just to, uh, to approach you with a fast round of questions. With, since we're having this conversation at uh, first thing on a uh, crisp Canberra morning, I I'm sure you'll be up for. Uh, multiculturalism or cosmopolitanism? Well, I have no confidence in multiculturalism at all, no, and have not for a long time. To me, multiculturalism is simply immigration policy. It has to do with creating a society in which many cultures are honoured. But this is of little interest to me, particularly if those who follow these different cultures are ghettoised, as they often are, not just in Australia, but in various parts of the world. I'm interested in the, multi, in the cosmopolitan human being, the woman in particular and the man. That's what interests me, and that's why I prefer the word cosmopolitan. And multiculturalism can produce cosmopolitan human beings, but quite often produces bicultural human beings. And this is of little interest to me, really. Mm. Tea or coffee? Tea, of course. Tea is playful. Tea stimulates. Coffee is for... Tea doesn't stimulate. I'm wrong there. Tea refreshes. Tea lifts the spirits. 
coffee, I think, is much more obviously a drug and more obviously addictive. And it's to give you energy to keep producing for your boss. That's what it's for. Whereas tea is for your own pleasure. <laughs> Epicureanism or Stoicism? Deep down, I think I'm more a Stoic, to be honest. I think... That's wonderful admission for a man who's just written a book called The Pleasures of Leisure. I know, but I'm not naturally good at leisure. I mean, I do point this out in the book. It's something that I've had to learn. I mean, it's always why I write books, in order to learn about something. Academics write books in order to tell you everything, because they already know everything about a certain subject. I don't do that. That's why I was a hopeless academic. I write in order to find out. And I think that stoicism is probably closer to who, deep down, I am. I particularly like the Stoic notion of not taking offence, by the way. Mm. You don't have to take offence if you're a Stoic. Simply refuse to do it. And living as I do, as you do, in a society where everybody's taking offence all the time, it's very important to me to say, actually, no. Are you rude about homosexuals? I don't take offence. I think that you are mistaken. I think that that's a cruel thing to say. I think it's a counterproductive thing to say. But I do not take offence. I love Martha Nussbaum's notion that anger is a waste of time. Yes. Uh, it's a beautiful way of uh, thinking about living life. Siestas or sleeping in? <laughs> well, both. I'm not very good at sleeping in again because of the Protestant thing, I suppose. I do try sometimes. Uh, we have church bells in Hobart. Mm. So if you try to sleep in on a Sunday morning, uh, by about 5 to 8, you're woken again. And then they, re they ring again at 10 o'clock. You can hear them right across the city and you have to get up whether or not you go to church. But the siesta, no, I, I am completely committed to the siesta, as is my partner and my dog. At 1.30, we all go to the television room where we have recliners, and we sit in the recliner, put our heads back, and have half an hour's siesta. This is an act of resistance. This is thumbing our nose. This is cocking a snook at capitalism. And so that's what we do. Your own personal beginnings of a, uh, a revolt against the, uh, the great system. Yes. Moscow or Petersburg? Well, Petersburg it's a, is a city where you can find pleasure. Moscow just looks to me like a cross between Pyongyang and Dallas, I have to say, and indeed have said. I think it is dedicated to wealth, to money, and to manipulating the masses. I don't like Moscow, although I, sent, uh, I have spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, St. Petersburg has its roots in the world where my roots are, I suppose, and that's Western Europe. What's your favourite method of travelling, mode of travel? Well, the train, but it's very hard to... I mean, we don't have any trains in Australia, clearly. I mean, there are things on tracks, but I wouldn't really call them trains in the sense that you have trains in Europe or trains in India. I mean, to go to an Indian railway station is just one of the most blissful things you can do. It, it's... It's, it's, it makes me euphoric beyond all belief. Trains are the way to travel. Don't you agree? I mean, 
Don't you think trains are wonderful? Oh, I love it. To get around India uh, on a proper sleeper, yes. the likes of which we, we no longer really have in Australia, no. uh, is uh, you know, just to, to, to be lulled into, into, into sleep by the gentle click-clack of the tracks, yes. uh, to be woken up by the uh, sellers shouting, Chai! Chai! Yeah, is, yes. uh, is just glorious. It is glorious. But it's just not so easy to do. I like to travel alone, if that's an answer to your question. I have travelled mm. with friends. I never travel with my partner. But I like to travel alone because I can be anyone I want. Whereas if I travel with a friend, I can't pretend to be a Romanian prince, you see, when I get up in the morning. If I'm <laughs> alone, I can. There's no one to tell me I'm not. Walking or jogging? Oh, well... I am deeply opposed, <laughs> but not offended by, jogging. Uh, jogging, it seems to me, is simply to display your body anxiety in public, always, of course, on the main road. In Hobart, people only jog on Sandy Bay Road. I live just off Sandy Bay Road. Nobody in 10 years has ever jogged past my house. You only jog on Sandy Bay Road where everyone can see your body anxiety displayed. You're usually half naked and you push everyone else off the footpath. It ruins your ankles and it has no cardiac effect at all that other more pleasurable activities, which I can't mention on your program, afford you. I'm against jogging, of course. Walking, particularly with no purpose, is heaven. And you can do that in Hobart. I think you can do it in Canberra. It's much easy, much harder in, say, Sydney or Melbourne because you could appear to be loitering, which our culture doesn't approve of. And if you're a woman, you're not allowed to loiter at all, of course. Were the Kelly gang gay? No, because gayness is an American fetish, so they weren't. Whether they were up for a bit of same-sex sex, I can't say, but quite possibly. I mean, going quite often to India, as I do, and also to Indonesia, I'm very aware of how our division of human beings, for political purposes and for very useful political purposes, our division of human beings into gay and into straight is a cultural game, really, and it's not observed in India, let's say, where plenty of same-sex sex goes on, but without that sort of nomenclature. Mm. Uh, it's not that I believe in the infinite gamut of queerness, not at all. I don't believe in that. I think that is an invention of the academy, I must say. I think most people are perfectly aware of how they feel about sex and what their fantasies are. But I think that our culture sometimes pushes people to make choices, to, to inhabit a certain room that they're not actually cut out for. In your own case, your sexuality has evolved through, through your life. Yes. Uh, does, uh, how, how does that shape uh, how you think about living a good life and about uh, sex itself? Uh, now. No one's asked me about sex yet on this book tour, I must say, so I'm slightly shocked. The great tragedy for gay men of my generation, I think, is that we deeply love women, you see. And I was married, of course, for a long time to a woman 
I could live in a world without men, but I couldn't live in a world without women. That is the great tragedy of my life. But in terms of sexual fantasies or sexual acts, it is sexual acts with other men that I find most exciting. And there you go. That's not a choice. It's simply how my mind works. And I'm not upset about it. I, it's very easy now, thanks to Australia's liberal culture and certain politicians, to live like that. But I do wish that, and perhaps it's happening with young people, that masculinity in Australia had more openness and in it and less fear of vulnerability, which is what, of course, I love about women, and allowed men to chat more, as you are now doing with me, rather than make announcements, which for most of my life is what men have done. When it comes to sex itself, as I've said in this book, I think that it is, of course, important for most of us, but not everybody, that you have an anchor, an emotional anchor, which probably begins as sexual. If it goes on for a long time, probably after five to ten years, it won't be sexual. Because other things simply overwhelm that. And the novelty that is so important for male sexuality is no longer there. But that aside, I do think, and I write about it playfully, I suppose, in this book, is that the dalliance comes into play. I'm a great believer in the dalliance. The dalliance is a form of play, and indeed some cultural theorists would say the highest form of play mm. in the world, because the dalliance, properly conducted, contains rules. It takes place at a certain place on a certain at a certain time. There are other rules, no names or names, or you may meet my partner or you may not meet my partner. There are always rules. There is romping, but there are other activities that may or may not happen. It is bounded. You also are recreating something which all good play does, whether it's mass in a Roman Catholic church or whether it's playing chess. You are recreating something, I won't say metaphysical, but beyond the self. That's always important in play. It must be part of play. Dogs do it on the beach. They recreate being a raw dog. Every pack animal does it. And in the dalliance, you recreate the old, old, old human sense of being a lover. Of course, it's dangerous, but I can't conceive of living without the dalliance. You... Uh had an experience in 2011 where you had a heart attack and your heart stopped on the way to uh, to hospital and twice uh, and you you wrote afterwards that it made you value the passing time that it made you uh, or as I interpreted it try to squeeze more out of each uh, each, each day uh, how does that how did that manifest itself practically how does a near-death experience help you live a better life subsequently well, the intensity with which you feel those things, of course, for the first six months or year, diminishes naturally. I mean, because just to survive, you have to forget trauma up to a point. But I would probably use different words. It's important to me, since that experience, to give up any notion of achieving 
and to give up any notion of being in the thick of it. It doesn't matter. It leads to nothing. I want to have a life that matters to those who matter to me. And that's it. It also taught me, thanks to the poem of Philip Larkin's Days, that days are to be happy in. You are a politician. You probably believe that days are also to help other people in, or to improve the world in, or to produce good in. I wouldn't start with that. I would hope to do it. And of course, one fine form of leisure, for example, is to teach the illiterate how to spell. Uh, I have a friend who goes to the Northern Territory every year and teaches Aboriginal children how to spell. That is leisure for her. But I think you should start with Philip Larkin's notion, the very simple line in the poem, days are to be happy in. And that's what that experience taught me. And I do try to live by that. And I try to live, as this new book says, in splodges. That was the other thing that lying in hospital after the heart attack taught me, that life is not one bead after another on a necklace. Life is a horizontal <sighs> phantasmagoria, really, of splodges of different colours and sizes. And one should hop from one to the other. One should not go in a straight line towards the last bead. And so that's what I try to do. I don't succeed very often, <laughs> but I try. You, you seem exceptionally good at uh, uh, what in the cliché is growing old gracefully. And you write at, uh, at uh, one point that each age is capable of its own perfection. Uh, to what extent uh, is it important to find new activities to make that work? How, how, do, how do we achieve perfection in each of our chronological ages? Well, you aim for perfection, don't you, really, rather than achieve it. You have to admit, as you get older, I mean, particularly once you're over about 55, that there are things that the body won't want to do, really, anymore. I can't go trekking, for example, which I would love to do. It wouldn't be fair to my fellow trekkers. So I don't do that. I go on walks if I'm in, say, Ladakh or I'm in wherever I might be. I might be in France or I might be in Tasmania. I wouldn't trek now. I would simply walk. I think that you have to look at what your body can gracefully do. I don't think that there is much point in pretending that your body is a 22-year-old. That's vanity. I do think that's vanity. And when you look at Mrs. Trump, you can see where vanity of that kind leads you. Let me conclude with a, a handful of questions which I ask uh, each of my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self, Robert? That's a wonderful question. It really is, and it's quite painful to answer. I suppose I would say to my teenage self, you don't know almost everything as you think you do, and you will find that you know less and less as life goes on, not more and more, and you will decide eventually, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, that meaning will always escape you. 
but beauty will not. So concentrate on beauty. How have you concentrated on, on beauty? You, I mean, you have an interest in art early on. What other ways in which does the... How else does the love of, of beauty manifest itself? Well, the love of beauty and art got stomped on a bit because, I mean, I took up with Peter Timms, who is an art critic and knows an awful lot about art, so I felt I should really shut up and uh, <laughs> just uh, ask him what was beautiful and what wasn't. But, of course, yes. I mean, I went to... Uh, Grace Cossington Smith exhibition in Brisbane the other day and I cried and then I was approached by a lesbian and told her not to cry and that she really loved my books and so I cried again when she said that beauty <laughs> is, I'm sorry I'm laughing at your crying <laughs> beauty is largely an emotional thing I'm sure you know what I mean Andrew. it's an emotional thing it's not just the Himalayas but I do feel a sublime euphoria a mixture of fear and thrill in the Himalayas, which I do not feel in the Australian Alps and I do not feel in Tasmania. I think Tasmania is lovely, but once you've seen Kanchenjunga, lovely isn't quite enough. Or once you've been to Ladakh, for example, that kind of beauty sweeps me off my feet and makes me forget time and who I have been. But one can't spend one's life in the Himalayas. And so it's beauty in language and beauty in relationships, a small number of relationships, trying to refine them, trying to deepen them, trying to find a different kind of tenderness in them, or even a different kind of roughness in them, but a different quality from the quality that I have up till that point loved. What else can I do, really? I don't find peaceful landscapes attractive. I mean, some people do, particularly if they have a stressful life. I don't have a stressful life. I have a, a very nice, rather dog-like life. But I don't have any desire <laughs> to go and lie in a beautiful resort in Fiji. I do understand that you may want to, or someone else may want to, that it might refresh you or give you a sense of being in heaven. I don't want to do that. I love to go to India because I feel more alive. And at my point in life, I do not want stillness. I want to be vivified. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I do not believe that religious organisations have any useful role to play in my life. But in the life of others? If they think so, who am I to say that that is not so? I think if you live in a very populous country such as China or India or some African countries, probably in those sorts of com highly communal societies, religion does have... Uh, a part to play. But not all religions are quite as, what would you say, uh, organisationally rigid as Christianity. One of the things I like about Hinduism, it's not that I believe in the realities of Hinduism, I don't think that Shiva is sitting up near Dehradun somewhere in the foothills of the Himalayas, of course I don't believe that. But I like the way that in Hinduism there isn't much organisation, beyond the temple itself. And it's not about being right. One of the things about Christianity that 
I suppose I've left behind is the notion that it's important to be right. Hindus aren't interested in that. Muslims are, I think. Christians are. Jews are. It's a desert religion thing. I don't think Buddhists are particularly, although they have strong notions about things that are better than other things. I just think it's very individual. And, and the thing I do like about both Hinduism and Buddhism, although I'm not a believer or an observer in any way at all, is that they are not vast framing organizations which tell you how to, which follow how you lead your life and punish you if you make a mistake. When are you most happy? With my dog on the beach, I suppose, when I'm watching her, as I like to think of it, being raw, what I am cooked. I'm very cooked. I mean, culture has cooked me. I was cooked at the ANU, I've been cooked by good books, I've been cooked by clever friends, I'm heavily cooked. The dog, on the other hand, is raw. And so when I'm with the dog, she is just being a ludicrously happy pack animal in a way I can't be, but I can edge closer as I observe her with her friends. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Learn Indonesian at the moment and go to Indonesia and walk around. Do you have any guilty pleasures? That's a very good question. I mean, I don't smoke anymore and I have never drunk alcohol. Some would think that I should be guilty about dalliances, but I'm not, because my partner is aware of them, and I write about them. I don't usually give names. What would I be guilty about? Can you think of anything? I'm trying to think. I'm one of those people who don't think that sex is of itself wrong any more than I think eating rhubarb is wrong. I think that stuffing yourself with anything and becoming addicted to something is a shame, or behaving violently towards others, particularly if they don't enjoy being behaved violently towards, which is usually the case, is wrong. But I don't think sex of itself is wrong. And which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? An ethical life. That is a very hard question. Nobody has ever asked me that. I find that really difficult to answer because if I were to say Seneca or somebody like that, I'm aware at the same time that, of course, Seneca did dreadful things. I mean, he had slaves, after all. But that wasn't his fault because that was just what people like Seneca did. That was the society that he lived in. If I were to name religious figures such as, who would it be? I don't like St. Augustine, I must say. But if I were to mention Jesus or Mary Baker Eddy, let's say, I would have to say, yes, they've had a huge effect on how I think and I admire them. But I'm not anybody's disciple. Who else? 
I don't like Tolstoy. It's really difficult to think. It's a very good question, and I'm now going to go and chew it over. <laughs> Did you, you you spoke about your your father, uh, Tom Jones, at the at the start? It sounds as though he had uh, quite an impact on shaping you, or was that more in terms of uh, your intellectual side than your ethical side? No, I think on, on in terms of my ethical side, uh, really. Tom was uh, from a family of 13 children. He was a lapsed Catholic. He lapsed very heavily at the age of about 12. Never went back or showed the faintest interest mm. in Catholicism for the rest of his life. He was a generous soul, which I've not always been. He was a deeply generous, loving soul. And he was not embarrassed about kissing me and about holding me in a way that European fathers will kiss and hold their children, but not many Australian fathers will. And I think this, what does this do to you? It makes you hungry, really, for expressions of emotion and warmth. So, but I didn't understand that at the time. He embarrassed me. He wore loud Hawaiian shirts and he was overweight. And he wasn't like my friends' fathers at North Sydney Boys High School, who tended to be one or two notches higher up the social ladder than he was. Uh, it was in Lane Cove that we lived. In those days, Lane Cove was really lower middle class, you see, 1940s. I believe it's gone up. I never go back to have a look. I don't really want to see what's happened to Lane Cove. But that love and generosity mm. must have been an extraordinary gift to bestow on a, on, on a, on a young boy. I was his uh, treasure, he said, you see. And he hadn't expected a treasure. And he was old. I was adopted when he was 55, which was illegal. But it was during the war. And so rules were broken during the war because fathers and mothers were killed. And so there was a bit of, um, what do you say, sort of, Fudging, is that what you say? I mean, people broke the rules. Uh, my mother was also not young. I mean, she was also her mid-40s. And uh, this has an effect on a child naturally. But what the adopted child feels is that they have been chosen. And as a result, choosing, this is important in the new book, has become a very important verb in my vocabulary because I grew up with having been chosen. Well, Robert, you said you weren't generous, but you've been extraordinarily gen generous to us today in uh, sharing your beautifully chosen words and observations of wisdom on the world. So it's thank all, you for the conversation. It's all questions, Andrew, uh, and I thank you for them. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.